I'm going to have to apologize for the voice and the coughing. I've been having this um, about this week. And as much as I want to rest, I realize that I wouldn't want to be anywhere else except here. So start the year right, 2024, for God. I also apologize if uh, at the end of the service I will not hug you or, or shake your hands. I don't want to pass this on to you. Now, we're starting this year with a new series for the month of January. It's called Starting the Year Right. We're going to look at a couple of stories and events and characters in the Bible where we can learn how they've started their life right with God. Now, I grew up with uh, starting the year with New Year's resolutions. Uh, with fresh, we can try again, we can make new attempts at how to do things properly. But the question is, how do we really start the year right? How do we start it, the year right? Now, I want to focus today on a particular story with a particular character in the Bible it's called Abram. And I want to tell you that Abraham, or Abram, his story is about starting or rebooting his life, starting his year starting his life again. If you asked a Jew today about Abraham, who is Abraham, they would tell you that Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. And Abraham is known to be a very patient man of unrelenting trust in God. In fact, if you read the Bible, there's a huge chunk of portion in the book of Genesis and all scattered in the book of the New Testament about Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. But you see, there's more to it than just the story of Abraham having children and possessing the land of inheritance. His story is actually the story of how God started rebuilding his kingdom. When you read the story of Abraham, you're actually reading the story of God rebuilding his kingdom. So there are 11 chapters in Genesis before the story of Abraham. And I'm going to go through this because this is very important in understanding the story of Abraham. So Genesis 1 and 2 talks about creation. You've read this a couple of times. you got day 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, 6 and 7. By the end of 7, it's the Sabbath day. But the story of creation centers around the Garden of Eden where the presence of God dwells. This is very interesting. So the question is, where does, where's the Garden of Eden? Where is it? Now, what's interesting is that you have probably read this story, but you have, may, may have missed a very important detail that talks about where this Garden of Eden was. Now, we're going to make speculations at this point, but there was no specific place or location or geotagging in the Bible where you will find the Garden of Eden. So you skip one and two, and you go to chapter three, what you will find is... Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve was the couple that God put inside the Garden of Eden to manage the Garden of Eden. But the bad thing is that they rebelled against God and they, at the behest of the serpent, conspired against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. And so, as a consequence, they were evicted out of the garden. And there's this very small detail that talks about the location of the Garden of Eden. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 said, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, now watch that word, the word east, 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's plural, in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now that small commentary about the east of Eden may not be important at this point, but you bear in mind that this is a marker of falling away from grace. Because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they were banished to the east of Eden. There's something special about this east. And later on, we will go through that. East of Eden. And so you continue reading the story. And when you continue reading the story of the Bible, you will come across the word east or eastward or going east. It's always a marker of falling away from grace. It's always a marker of falling away or being driven away from the presence of God. Question, next question is, why guard the tree of life? Why did God put a cherubim or cherubim, plural, and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life? Because the tree of life is the antidote to death. The consequence of eating the forbidden fruit is death. And so if Adam and Eve were to access back to the Garden of Eden and eat from the tree of life, they might have lived forever. And God placed the cherubim to forbid that. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you will find that this recurring theme of the tree of life is always repeated by Jesus. And you will find Jesus, when he multiplied bread twice, after multiplication of bread, he said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. He was referring to this, the tree of life. And then we, when he met the woman at the well, he said, if you only knew, you would have asked for the water of life. I am the water of life. And then Thursday night, having his last supper, he broke the bread and he said, eat this. This is my body. This is life. So when you look at the cross, the body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, you should think about the tree of life. This is the basis where we can cure death. Jesus being the author of life. Jesus being the basis of forgiveness. The one who will give life back to us. And so it's a tying up of Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the New Testament, tree of life. Now going back to Genesis chapter 4. So we get creation 1 and 2. We have the fall, chapter 3. And we have chapter 4, Cain. This is a story about two brothers, one who killed his brother. And as a consequence, God evicted Cain away from the presence of God. Now watch this, because that word, the very important word, east, will be mentioned again. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Where exactly is east of Eden? Now, you may probably have an idea if you're looking at the map. If you're looking at, and if you're assuming that Israel is the land of Eden, you may not be wrong. So, Cain was banished to the east of Eden. Now, here's the thing. Adam and Eve were sent away east of Eden. And Cain were sent further east of Eden. And what exactly is the land of Nod? In Hebrew, Nod means wandering. That means Cain went to a place of wandering. He's not lost. He's just wandering around. He's evicted from away from the presence of God. He's wandering. Land of Nod. Now, the idea that Cain is getting punished for his sin is like the idea of what happened in the story of Israel. 
Now you see, wandering is always associated with the wilderness, the desert, the wilderness. Cain, because of his sin, was banished to wander in the land of wandering, land of Nod. When the Israelites rebelled against God, they were banished away to the, to the wilderness and they wandered for 40 years. Do you see the similarity? The story of Cain is repeated in the story of the Israelites. So that means East is being driven away from the presence of God. Cain was driven farther away from the presence of God. Now, by the time you hit chapter 6, chapter 5 is the genealogy. Chapter 6, there was a story about the sons of God, a.k.a. the fallen angels or the heavenly beings, coming down to earth, intermarrying with human beings, and they made a conspiracy to rebel against God. Big time. This is en masse. The whole world has rebelled against God. And so what did God do? This was too serious that God decided to destroy the whole world through flood. And so you have the story of Noah. Flood came, Noah was saved together with, with his family. By the time we hit chapter 7 of Genesis, everyone is dead and everything was destroyed, ex especially the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. Now we have nowhere to situate where the Garden of Eden is and the Tree of Life. That means these eight people on board the ship, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, not the Covenant, but the Ark, have no way to cure death. They can only prolong life, but they cannot cure death. And so the ark landed in Mount Ararat. That's the Agridag located in the border of Turkey and Armenia. And the same blessing that God gave to Adam were given to Noah. The minute he stepped out of the boat, God said, go and multiply. The same thing that he said to Adam, he told Noah. But then in the same chapter, chapter 9, God will bring back the story of Cain. This is what it says. Genesis 9 verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. As if God is telling us, the readers of Genesis, that we have to think back again to the story of Cain. Even, even though there was a sort of an intermission when there was flood on earth, he was trying to, to tell us to focus back on the sin of Cain, the murder of Cain. He said, God made man in his own image. God wants us to continue the storyline. And here's the storyline. East is about rebellion. East is punishment. East is being away from the presence of God. Now, there's a slight break in chapter 10. There's another genealogy. But then in chapter 11, we have the story of another Cain. What I'm saying. In chapter 4, Cain was banished in the wilderness or in the land of wandering. He got tired of it. He settled and built a city. See, the same story happened in chapter 11. Watch this. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. I'm supposing it's Tagalog. That's a joke. Are you still here? All right. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, that's the word again. So east, going east, eastward. 
As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So there's a similar story about the story of Cain. He wandered and then he settled and then he built a city. These people wandered around going eastward and they settled in the land of Shinar and they decided to build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And there was, what's the reason? To make a name for themselves. In other words, to make their name great. This is about glory. This is about their glory. You see, the ancients believed and understood that they are not immortal. They cannot live forever. And the only way they, they can be immortal, that they can make their name great, they can transcend that immortality, is when they have, they have built something for themselves, that their name will last forever. And so that's the reason why they built this city and a tower, to make sure that their legacy lives on even after they die. And this tower, this city and tower, sort of symbolize their legacy that can stand the test of time. Now, what exactly are they building? Uh, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Does it look like the Burj Khalifa in Dubai? Now, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is the tallest building in the whole world right now. It's 163 floors, 2,717 feet, but still it doesn't reach the heavens. So it's short compared to reaching the heavens. So what is it exactly? Now, according to the scholars of the Old Testament, this tower that they built fits the Etimenanki or the Ziggurat in Mesopotamia. You will find this in Iraq, the modern-day Iraq. The Mesopotamians built this tower. It's not for people to go up to the heavens. That's the wrong notion. It's actually the opposite. The Etimenanki, the Ziggurat, the city and the tower on top is meant for God or gods or whoever is up there to come down on earth. That is the goal of this city and a tower. If you're following the story all the way from Genesis 1 into creation, there's the Garden of Eden. This is man's attempt to establish back the Garden of Eden. They want to create a Garden of Eden where God can come down and dwell there his presence with man. They're trying to create heaven on earth among them. So if you read your Bible and go straight to the story of Abraham, and you did not read Genesis 1 through 11, you will lose the full understanding of why and how and where God called Abraham. And this is very important. So while we have the story of Cain building a city, we have the people building a city and a tower. Genesis 12 is the story of how God plans to rebuild his kingdom. This is God rebuilding his kingdom through Abram. But remember, the genealogy did, did not start with Abram. The genealogy started with Adam. Adam was the first man. And then when you read the genealogy, chapter Genesis 5, and then Genesis chapter 10, and then you hit Genesis chapter 11, this is what it will say. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, 
And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. Ur of the Chaldeans is in Mesopotamia, that's Iraq. And when they came to Haran, Haran is now the present day, the border of Syria and Turkey. They settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. 205 years. I feel like I'm a toddler. 205 years. Anyone wants to, to live that long? 205 years? Okay, Edwin, you're not 205? That means Terah, for whatever reason, according to this passage, decided to travel back from Mesopotamia westward. This is very interesting because everything before this is going east, east, east. But now, Terah, together with his family, decided to go back westward to the land of Haran. Their actual final destination is Canaan, but he stopped in Haran. He stopped there, and the Bible said he died there. It's also mentioned that Abraham had a wife, and his wife's name, Sarai. Now, before Sarai, it's, she's Sarai. Now, what's so special about Sarai? In chapter 11, verse 30, it says, Now, Sarai was childless. Because she was not able to conceive. In other words, she's barren. Now, if you understand the ancient Near Eastern culture, your name lives on either by the things you build or by the number of children you make. Otherwise, you're just no one. And your legacy will not live on. And it looks like Abraham at this point doesn't have both. He doesn't have big accomplishments. He doesn't have huge architectural projects. Remember, they left the Tower of Babel. He was married, but they have no children. In fact, at this point, you would say that Abraham is just any other ordinary person like me. But not until you reach Genesis chapter 12. In chapter 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, that is Haran, your people and your father's household, to the land that I will show you. What God is asking Abram is to leave his family behind. Leave everything behind. In exchange for what? Verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. This is exactly what the people who were building the Tower of Babel was doing to make their name great. They're building a tower so that their name will be great, will be known throughout all the world. And yet Abraham has, doesn't have that. He has not participated in that. And yet, this is what God is promising Abraham. I will make your name great. You don't have to do a thing. I can make it for you. But here's a caveat, verse 3. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. This is a language of protection. I will protect you. Whoever beats you, I will beat. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. That's the idea. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then I think this is the most important phrase in here. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, in contrast, the people who were building a tower were trying to make their name great. And yet God here is saying to Abram, I will make your name great. And I think as much as we want to be happy for Abram because God is making his name great, the blessing is not really all about Abram. The blessing is so that he will become a blessing to all the nations. See, this story is about God building himself a nation. God is building a nation who will bless all the other nations of the world. And Abraham was called to be a blessing to other nations of the world. That means the buck doesn't stop with Abraham. 
See, when God blesses people, it's not, it's not just about that particular person. When God blesses people, it's because he wants to bless other people as well. Are you with me? When God wants to bless you, he wants to bless other people as well. That means the blessing of your skill, of your resources, of your time, of your passion must bless other people around you. It's not meant to be kept. See, when God sends rain on the north, on the mountains on the north of Israel, it waters the forest. And the water goes down from the mountain, goes to the Sea of Galilee. It becomes a blessing, blessing to the fishes. And then it goes through the river, the Jordan River. It will flow all the way south to the Dead Sea. And even when the water comes to the Dead Sea, it becomes salt. Salt has use. It still has a blessing. And see, blessing is not meant to be kept. It's meant to be shared. That's how blessing works. But why does God need to bless all the nations through Abram? In spite of the fact that all the nations rebelled against God, why is God reaching to the rest of the nations? And the answer to that lies in what God said to Noah. He said in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, For God made man in his own image. But that means no matter how dissatisfied you are, every time you look in the mirror, that means you are made in the image of God. You can say amen to that. No matter how dissatisfied you are with your life right now, maybe you have not reached your dream. Maybe you don't have a, an awesome job. Maybe, you know, what you dre- dreamt about when you were young have not been accomplished in your life. You are made in the image of God. No matter how you don't like your life or yourself right now, the Bible said you are made in the image of God. But that means you are worth saving. You are worth blessing. God is is reaching out to you because you are worth it. You are made in the image of God. And if Abraham is to become a blessing to all the nations, he must grow to a nation. He must become a nation. He must possess a land, a territory, and his name to become great. That's one problem. His wife, Sarah, is barren. So that means even if God gives him a territory as big as the territory of the United States, even if he becomes a national celebrity overnight, without an heir, he's just an ordinary person, just like me. So he needs an heir. Problem is, his wife's barren. See, in that nomadic lifestyle of the ancient people, family is everything. To move away from your family can mean life or death, prosperity or poverty. So when God called Abraham, Abraham, God was calling him away from his source of security and comfort, away from his sense of belongingness. God said, go to the country I'm showing you, away from your country, away from your family, away from your household. God is calling him to leave things behind. And what did God say? I'm going to show a place for you. Where? Very reassuring. There was no specific place. Just a land I'm going to show you or about to show you. But this is what I said in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Iran. 75 years old. My goodness. And then it says, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, 
all the possessions they had accumulated. That means the herds and the flocks. And the people they had acquired in Iran, that means he has slaves. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's bad news. Somebody is occupying the land that God is about to give to him. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, not offsprings, to your offspring, I will give this land. That even if there was somebody occupying the land, God is still giving him assurances. I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, if you read this story, it might not be very interesting until you really focus on the details. Now, if Abram was to travel on foot, it would have taken him months, if not years, to travel all the way from Haran in Turkey down to Canaan in Palestine right now to Shechem. And I calculated it. It's about 800 kilometers. 800 kilometers on foot. Now, if Abram is traveling with the herds and servants and everything that they possess, it will be painfully slow. That's why I said it's, it probably took him months or years. It's, it's slow. And they will be threatened by the bandits along the way and the harsh conditions of traveling. What that means is that what Abram did by moving or going or leaving the things behind, And going to the promised land, the land that God is showing him, is an act of sheer faith. He doesn't have a picture of what he will, you know, he will, he will possess. He doesn't have an exact geotag of where to go. God just simply said, go to the land I'm showing you. You see, here's the contrast. In Haran, he already has everything he needed. He has family, he has possessions, he has an inheritance. He has everything he needed, and yet he gave up those things because God promised him something. Because God promised him something. Now, if Abraham is bringing everything that he had, again, what we're saying is that this is faith in action. But there's another important detail in the story that I don't want you to miss. It says, as he reached the land, he, God appeared to him and confirmed what God wants to give him, an offspring and a land. But the problem is, There are Canaanites in the land, illegal occupiers in the land. Now, to those of you, I haven't really addressed this, but to those of you who are still on the fence as to what are we going to do? How do we understand the conflict in Gaza right now? Now, you watch the news and you see the conflict and the war has been going on since last year about this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. What are we going to do with that? The politics definitely is complicated, starting all the way from 1947 when the British mandate was was given and the Israelis was granted the piece of land and the Palestinians rejected it. But here's a very simple story that you can find from the Bible. Regardless of the politics, get into the Bible. This is what the Bible is saying. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 to 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, what does this mean? When did God divide mankind and gave inheritance? This refers to Genesis chapter 11. When God came down at the Tower of Babel and confused people with languages, he divided mankind. This is Genesis 11. 
And what he says in verse 9 is that God's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. What this refers to is that God's chosen people, the Israelites or the descendants of Jacob, were given a very specific piece of real estate in Israel. The Bible is a witness to what God gave to them, their inheritance, because this is a language of inheritance. Verse 12 says, it's the Lord's portion, and if it's the Lord's portion, and he's the father, he is able to give inheritance to his son. And at this point, he's giving it to Abram as inheritance. So really, the contention in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank is not about social justice. Don't believe it. The real contention in Gaza Strip and the West Bank is who has the right to inherit the land? What's really going on there? The Palestinians believe that they are descendants of Ishmael. Now, who is Ishmael? Ishmael is the firstborn son of Abram. Now, before Isaac came, he, you know, had, had this mistake and he slept with the, the maid of Sarai. Her name is Hagar and they had a son. The son was Ishmael. So Ishmael was the firstborn son. But he is not the legitimate son of Abram. What this means is that the Palestinians today who believe that they are descendants of Ishmael has the right to the land. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about anywhere east of Israel. Now watch this. Genesis 25 verse 5 and 6. Now what what we may probably don't know is that we thought that Abraham only had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. It's not true. At the end of his life, Sarah dies, and then he remarried, and then he had other sons, seven more sons. Genesis 25 verse 6 says, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, because he is the only legitimate son, but to the sons of his concubines, including Ishmael, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward, there you go again, east of the country. Anywhere, every time you read in the Bible, east, eastward, going east, it's always going away from the presence of God. So we're talking about what is east of Israel right now is Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. These are the people who are Arabs who claim to be descendants of Ishmael, who claims to be inheritors of the land of Israel. That's the reason why they would not give up their rights to the land. Israel would not give up either. So there will be an ongoing war for God who knows when will it stop. So if we go by either God's design or by historical account, I believe that the Jews have the right to the land, including the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, because that is their inheritance. See, this is not about social justice. It's all about the inheritance. Here's a question I have. Why did the Arabs reject the British mandate in 1947? Why did the, the Arabs rejected the partition of the land in 1947? Why is the battle cry of the Palestinians from the river to the sea? See, there's one reason. Because they believe that Ishmael has the right to the inheritance of the land. Folks, this is not about oppression. This is not about illegal occupation. This is about inheritance. Now, the question is, what does this got to do with us? Oh, all right, Pastor, I know the history now. I get it. But what has this got to do with me? What is God telling me today through the story of Abram? You see, Terah, the father of Abraham, brought his entire family from Mesopotamia all the way to Haran. And Abraham's inheritance when, 
when Terah died was in Haran. That was his inheritance. When his older brother, also named Haran, died, that means the firstborn status was passed on to him. He's inheriting everything in Haran. And yet when God called him, Abram gave up everything, his inheritance, his family, his country, to pursue what God is telling him. All dream and the prospect of having, of becoming a great nation. And yet when he arrived in Shechem, he saw the Canaanites. Can you believe, can you imagine what, what was going through his head when he saw that it was full of Canaanites? Is this the land that God is giving me? How can I have it? I'm only one. I have no offspring. I have no descendants. I have slaves. I'm only a man. I'm not a nation. And yet, when he came there, God repeated this promise. In verse 7, it says, And the Lord appeared to Abram. He does not just speak to Abram. God appeared to Abram. As if God is saying, I'm making a stamp. I'm making a stand. I'm telling you right by here, I'm giving you this land to your offspring. That means you're going to be a nation. I will give this land. And I think Abram understood that it's ultimately not about him. It's about the nation God is building through him. It's about God building his own kingdom, his own glory, his own name. Beloved, whatever that God is giving you in 2024, Whatever God is promising you or blessing you or giving favor to you, whatever you will receive in 2024 is ultimately not about you. It's about the kingdom of God for his glory. The reason why I believe that Abraham gave up everything that he had was because he caught on the vision. God was doing something bigger, something taller, something greater than what they were building in the Tower of Babel. In Mesopotamia, God is building his kingdom. And Abraham saw the vision. He wanted to become part of that kingdom. God is building. And so he decided to leave everything. Everything he considered comfort and security in exchange for God's promise. You see, God will not fill your cup until it's empty. Are you with me? God does not bring manna until the next day. Until you don't have anything else. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It is today's bread, not tomorrow's bread. Whatever God is giving you in 2024, it's for now. But you got to trust him to give you that. And I'm thinking about this and I realized Abram was so convicted that when God called him, he did not think twice. There was no second thoughts. When God told him, go, he, he went. He was sold to the idea. So I asked, why did Abram just suddenly change his mind? What made Abram decide to follow this God? Now you have to remember, all the way back to Mesopotamia, Abram, or Abram, worshipped multiple gods. His father worshipped multiple gods. So what made Abram decide to follow this one God? Here's a simple reason. Because the gods in Mesopotamia wanted temples built for them, wanted worship and adoration before they can give the blessing. This God that Abram followed did not ask for a temple built for him, did not ask him for anything. Instead, God is giving to him instead of him giving to God. 
He said, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. That means when Abraham saw that, that this is a different kind of God. When Abraham saw that, that means he put everything in this God. His security, the security of his family, the security of his future. There's a movie about James Bond. You know, James Bond is very popular. In one of the movies, he was playing the Baccarat. And then one of the scene, he placed on his cards, he pushed all his chips on the center of the table, and he said, all in. You know what that means, right? He's betting everything. I think this is what Abram is doing right now. He's betting everything. He's saying, God, I trust you, and I'm putting all in. Because you are a different God, because you are a God who I can trust, I'm putting all in. I don't know what season you are in right now. I don't know how God will speak to you through this sermon. Maybe, but maybe God is calling you just like Abraham to become more generous this year. Generous of your resources. Maybe generous of your skill. Maybe this year God's calling you to volunteer your skill. Maybe become a greeter every morning, Sunday morning. Or maybe come earlier so that you can help set up the equipment. Or maybe teach our Sunday school. I don't know what God is calling you today, but this 2024, maybe God is trying to tell you something. Or maybe, or maybe, just, just maybe, God is telling you, you have to start the year right. Maybe this year, you can come earlier to church. How's that sound? You see, worship starts, worship service actually starts earlier. It doesn't begin when the pastor preaches, all right? It begins way earlier than that. See, worship begins actually the moment you wake up in the morning and then you realize that God is important, that God is worthy of worship. So whether, whatever your decision, whether you come early or on time or later, it reflects the attitude of how you think God is important in your life today. Worship begins the moment you acknowledge God. And if we are going to start the year right, we have to remind ourselves that following God is about trusting Him. Trusting Him in 2023 is already past. We have to move on. Trust Him again in 2024. See, trust is a living thing. It's an action thing. It's a thing that you decide to do every day. Trust in God. Trust is how we respond to God's promises. Trust is the currency by which we operate as followers of Jesus Christ. Trust is telling God, I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. I don't know if the world will crash and burn in 2024, but even if it crashes and burns, I will still trust in you. Why? Because God is good. Because God is able. Because God is awesome. And this God who I trust loves me more than anyone else. God loves, believe me, God loves you more than you love yourself, more than your husband loves you, more than your children loves you, more than anyone else. This God whom Abram trusted is able, he's good, and he loves you. And you're telling God, I'm trusting you, and I'm leaving the past behind, 2023. I'm going to face 2024 with much anticipation because the God who promised Abram did not fail. The, the God who promised Abraham is faithful. Therefore, I will put my trust in him. This is the story 
of how we can really learn how to start the year right. See, God is building a kingdom. That's what he said. That's what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. God is building a kingdom. God has started to build a kingdom the moment Jesus came here. Are you on board? Here's a question for, for you that I, I want you to think about. The question is this. Are you all in for God? Will you start 2024 trusting God? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to always come before you, to always seek and thirst because we believe that only in you our souls will be satisfied. We are like the sheep that being led in the green pastures, drinking in still waters, and having your protection because your rod and your shield, they comfort us. You are our shepherd. And Father, we have 2023. Some of the events in our lives were not good. Some were good. But even so, Father, because of you, because we know that you are able and that you are good and that you are awesome and that you love us, we are moving behind 2023 and we are facing 2024 and trusting you with whatever that we have right now. Father, we're saying we don't know what's going to happen, but because you are good, because you love us, because you are able, we're trusting you. And I pray, Father, that you will convict our hearts. Whoever here, please talk to us. Whoever here that you are calling to share their talents, to share their skills, to share their resources and their, and their passion, I pray that you will speak to us in a very personal way. Would you bless us today, Father? In Jesus' name. Amen.